0: I've been uh, chewing on, on this passage from Lewis's book all week, and it's full of really thought-provoking sentences. But it hit me last night that the, the irony, uh, the irony of, of that film is that you've got this character who turns down the beauty of heaven because he can't reproduce it in paint. And it's obvious once you say it, but it, it hit me so strongly how, how odd that is. Um, but but here's, here's what I'd like to do tonight. We've been consistently looking at sayings of Jesus that have been considered throughout history to be difficult. Sometimes they're labeled the hard sayings of Jesus. And the one we're going to look at tonight is in the Gospel of Luke chapter 9. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. If you're in need of a Bible, there's one very close to you, I have no doubt, stuck in the back of a pew that you are welcome to use. There are green ones, blue ones, and black ones. The black ones would be the English Bibles. The saying we're going to look at tonight is not just a hard saying of Jesus, although it's clearly that. It's also one of his most recorded, Um, maybe more than any other thing that Jesus wrote. We find this not only in each gospel, but we find versions of it multiple times in Matthew as well as in Luke. Um, this, This concept that he nails down here is so central that as he toured Israel and as he spoke, he constantly came back. To these ideas. They're really the focal points. They're central to their ministry. The reason, the reason we're looking at Luke's version of it here in Luke chapter 9 is because Luke chapter 9 is central to Luke's gospel. It's a pivot. Everything that follows leads from this point. Everything that pre- uh, predates it leads up to this point. This is the point when Jesus has a conversation with the, his disciples and reveals his identity in no small terms. And so, effectively, he says, who are people saying that I am? And a few answers are thrown out, and he says, well, you guys, my disciples, who do you say? And Peter speaks right up, and he says, you're the Messiah. You're the promised one. You're the Christ. You're the one that is the hope of Israel. All of our expectations, they recognize that he's the one It's all been about, it's all been waiting for. And after strictly warning them to tell no one, he says this. He says this in verse 22. The son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now the reason why this is a pivot, why it is a central part of the book is because later in the chapter it says at this point, Jesus steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And if you continue to read through the gospel of, uh, gospel of Luke, he'll constantly remind us that that's where things are headed. It'll say, now on his way to Jerusalem, while he was going to Jerusalem, as he drew near to Jerusalem, over and over again until you get to chapter 19 and he rides in. But the reason he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem is contained in this prophetic pronouncement right here. I am going to Jerusalem. I will be rejected. I will be killed. And in three days, I will raise again. And so the steadfastness of his face is walking towards this fate, the cross, with determination and willpower taking step after step after step. And so, effectively, what he does is he recognizes and receives their identification. Yes, I am the Messiah. Now, let me tell you what that means, and let me tell you where this is going. What follows is effectively the answer to the question, how to be a Christian. What he says next is, now here's what it looks like to respond to the Messiah. Here's what it looks like to go where I'm going. Here's what it looks like to be saved, to join the kingdom in Jesus' own preaching. And this is what he says in verse 23. We're just going to look at 23, 24, and 25 tonight. He said to them all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he loses or forfeits himself? Let's pray. God, it's clear in reading the Bible that we are people in need of repetition. You remind us of who you are. You give us names to remind us of your character. You repeat things because we forget them. You call us to take communion and to do it in remembrance of you because we are a forgetful people. And so I pray as we look at this thing that was so important that Jesus made it an earmark of his ministry, that it was a constant saying on his lips, as well as I pray as we look at something that's so difficult where he paints with such a black and white hue, I pray, God, that you would show us um, the, the reality of these things and that by your spirit we would also understand their goodness. In your name we pray, amen. Now, the relationship between this is where I'm going, and if you're coming with me, this is what it will look like, is pretty obvious in this passage. He says, I am going to a cross, so what it looks like to follow me is to take up a cross. But it's important that we understand tonight um, that this is more than just an example. Jesus is not just saying, I'll show you the way to heaven and then walk it and you can walk behind me. What happens in the crucifixion of Jesus, according to Luke, according to Matthew and Mark and John, according to Paul in the entire New Testament, is something more profound than that. And when they talk about it, they basically sum it up as saying that Jesus has done everything we can't do and offered it to us freely. And so what he's saying here is, is how to receive that free gift, and so we got we to watch out here for reading this as being a prerequisite when it's actually just a description of, of the consequence and the byproduct product and the reality of quote-unquote choosing Jesus, okay? Now, what's, uh, what I'd like to do tonight, because you might be asking yourself, what in the world does this have to do with the arts? What does this have to do with artists? Um, What I'd like to do tonight, actually, I want to try and uh, bridge from both coasts. Usually, if you're building a bridge, it's a bad idea to start at both places and meet in the middle. Uh, But it's the only way we're going to accomplish this tonight. And with with a little bit of ingenuity and a little bit of luck, uh, we'll we'll make it across the river together. Um, But... Where I'd like to start tonight, before we talk about Lewis's content and before we talk about why artists and the arts are such a good illustration of these things, I want to help us understand this passage, okay? And I want you to recognize before we even get started that we're not going to exhaust the meaning of this text or even imp- uh, unpack the entirety of it. We're going to get enough so that you understand the gist. And then we're going to, like I said, use, use an artist, use this reality as an illustration of this principle. But it is clearly more than this, uh, than we'll talk about tonight. But I want you to notice, look again at verse 23. First off, notice that he says this to all. Now, here, that just means all who were present. But as I mentioned, this is a common and consistent saying of Jesus. He says this to his disciples. He says it to the crowds. The, the reason I point this out is because there's this tendency to divide life up into A-string and B-string, to, to have two paths. And so there's the, the entry-level path and the truly committed path. And every once in a while you'll encounter people who talk about salvation being bifurcated between those who have accepted Jesus and those who have become his disciples. But I want you to notice that he doesn't leave that up. He doesn't say, if anyone who is saved wants to do better or wants to go in deeper, he just leaves it in the big and the broad anyone, okay? And then notice what he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, like I said, there's a correspondence between what Jesus has just said he's here to do on earth. I am going to Jerusalem, I will be betrayed, I will be crucified, and then three days later I will rise again. There's a relationship between that and this that I think is pretty evident. What he says here effectively is, I'm headed to the cross, so if you're going my way, if you're going to follow me, it's going to be cross-like. That's the road. Now, clearly here he's not just saying, come with me to our deaths in Jerusalem, because notice what he says very carefully. He says, take up his cross daily. Okay. Now, maybe it needs to be said because the cross has become a religious symbol today. Remember, here we're talking about a terrible death penalty. Okay, the Romans felt that you couldn't talk about crucifixion in normal conversation. Okay, so devoting an entire hour sermon to it is, is an unbelievable thing in the, in the world where this is going on. It was so shameful of a crucifixion that they would actually crucify women facing the cross so they wouldn't have to see their faces, okay? And so when he says, take up your cross here, everybody knows what that means. It's very different from a WWJD bracelet, right? This is not just an identifying mark that puts you in the camp of Christianity or identifies you as a follower of Jesus. It's something extreme. It's nothing less than capital punishment. But when he says daily, what we need to recognize here is he doesn't mean it merely in the sense of it costing your life. Although I do want to be clear that for these men here, the ones that he's talking to now, the 12 disciples, that ended up being part of the deal. All of them lost their lives for being followers of Jesus, okay? But deeper than that is a recognition of death, of consequence, of persecution, that there is a cost. Jesus, in fact, in another place says that before you come and follow him, you should count the cost. That's his phrase. Pay attention. Notice what it's going to cost you. But what I want to focus on tonight is that phrase, deny himself. Okay? Let him deny himself. And first and foremost, notice that it doesn't say, let him deny himself good things. Let him deny himself sinful pleasures. Or let him deny himself, right? There's no following aspect there. This is not, you're going to have to hand over your riches, or you're going to have to set aside you know, stuff that you like to do, or you're going to have to stop your bad behavior. It's something deeper than that, right? It doesn't say deny yourself of these things. It says deny yourself. You see the difference there? It's an important one. And there's a sense where this makes absolutely perfect sense if we just put it a little bit differently, because what it means to follow Jesus is to follow him as opposed to following yourself, right? And so there's a sense where you could translate the idea here with, if anyone's going the direction I'm going, they're going to have to stop going the direction they're currently going, right? He's not here giving a prerequisite to following him, he's telling us what it looks like. And so it's either you are the master of your domain, or Jesus is. It's either he is the significance in your life, or you are. It's intrinsic. In fact, do you know how John's gospel records this? On one occasion, according to John's gospel, in John chapter 12, he actually says, anyone who hates himself will save himself, and anyone who loves himself will lose himself. Strong words, is it not? Self-hatred is what's required here. But there's a second thing I want you to notice here tonight, because this invitation sounds like just an option of many. If anyone wants to follow me, this is what it looks like. He doesn't address those who aren't following him, but you have to notice what he says next. Okay, look there at verse 24. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Okay, and so he paints things very black and white here, two options. You either seek to save or you seek to lose, and therefore you either lose or you save. Uh, And those two options are somewhat paradoxical, right? He presents this as a paradox. He says, if your goal is to save your life, you will lose it. But if your goal is to lose it for my sake, you will actually, paradoxically, find it. Okay? Now, remember what he's just said. He's talked about denying yourself and taking up your cross. And so the option he's presenting is either you take this road, and even though it looks like death and it sounds like denying yourself, you actually find yourself on the other side... Or you go, no, myself is too important. No, I'm not going to give that up. And he says, surprisingly, that's the best way to lose yourself. Okay. So what I want you to notice is according to this statement, there is no other option. The option is as simple as sinking boat, lifeboat presented. That's the options. Stay on the boat, get in the lifeboat. That's it. Follow Jesus or don't. And then paradoxically, he says, even though following me looks like denying yourself, looks like death, it is the only option for salvation. Now, before we look at the last verse, I want to clear another, fi- uh, another thing here, especially if you've grown up in the church, especially if you've been exposed to Christianity or if you've heard these sayings of Jesus Um, notice what he says here in verse 25. He says, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he loses or forfeits himself? We'll come back to that. But when I start the sentence that way, for what does it profit a man when he gains the whole world if he loses his, what comes to mind, soul, right? Because of the King James Bible and its influence. Okay, that makes it sound like what's at risk here is merely what for, for convenience sake I'll call eternal life. Okay, that we're just talking about heaven or hell. Notice here, Luke doesn't make it that simple. He says himself, forfeits himself. And even when it says life here, it doesn't just mean duration of life going on forever, a.k.a. the way we often think about heaven. It's speaking of a quality of life, okay? Heaven is not just breathing forever. That's not how it's presented in the Bible. In fact, eternal life is more, not less, more than heaven, okay? John's gospel puts it this way. Jesus is speaking and he says, for this is eternal life that you would know the Father and the Son whom he has sent. It's not something we're waiting on. It doesn't, it, it, what I'm saying here is from a biblical perspective, eternal life is not something you get when you die, okay? It's a right now scenario. In fact, another place in John, Jesus says it this way. I came that you might have life and have it abundantly, Okay? And so what I want you to recognize here is Jesus is not just talking about eternal consequence. He's talking about your person. He's talking about your value. He's talking about significance. He's talking about life as in the good life, as in real life, as in everything, okay? Jesus effectively makes the claim here that if you do not follow him, you will miss out on the meaning of life. That is what he's saying. He's saying, if you want to understand yourself, to know yourself, to find your true self, the only way is through him, okay? Now, clearly, that involves eternal consequence. Judgment, damnation, heaven, hell, salvation, all of those things are clearly part of that. It's more than that, though, and we have to understand that. And then the last thing I want to point out is what it says in verse 25. Again, it says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? The idea here is what does it matter if you get everything you ever wanted, but you lose your humanity? You get everything you ever wanted, but you have no ability to actually enjoy it. What if all of your dreams come true and then you wake up? That's the problem here. And so the last thing I want you to recognize here is not just, not just does Jesus say the only way to life is to follow him, and to follow him looks like death, but he also says the way that seems good to a man already is death. That the life we're pursuing apart from these things, it's no good, even if it looks like everything, even if you, you know, um, even if you set the top score on the machine of human living, what does it profit if you lose yourself in the process, okay? So that's what Jesus is saying here. It's, it's simple and clear and yet tremendously profound, and, and I don't want to downplay the reality. Jesus says that you should consider this. You should think, think through these things. Now, on the other shore, on the other shore, there's a reason why we're talking about this passage tonight as we look at C.S. Lewis's The Artist. And there's a couple of things we have to nail down. We have to kind of lay the framework over there. And so a few things. The first is this. There's a line in, uh, in the film as well in the sto- as in the story where he explains that the value of this artist's paintings were that he had seen glimpses of heaven in earth and painted them in such a way that other people saw them as well, okay? The idea here is that what makes art valuable is that it sees something true, okay? Now, the, the fact that an artist should be true is too easily caught up in some sort of... Um, artistic honesty or, honesty or integrity, which basically just means I don't care what people think of me, I'm going to say what I actually think. I mean more than that, okay? What Lewis is trying to communicate in that story is the same thing that children, uh, children's author Madeline Angle communicates in her book Walking on Water. Um, have you ever read Wrinkle in Time, that series? A lot of times it's assigned in school. So she wrote a book about a Christian view of art, and this is what she says. At its center, at its heart, what makes christian art is that it tells the truth she says this is to the degree that in her opinion you don't even have to be a christian to make christian art but the thing that makes art valuable or artistic from a christian perspective or or uh divinely imparted is that it has the same window to the truth okay and once again i mean truth is a capital t Okay? In other words, when people see it, there's a, something that resonates where we go, yes, that is real. Yes, that is life. Yes, that is part of the big, great, grand vision. We cannot talk about truth without talking about beauty. Because they always go hand in hand. Okay? And so another way to put this is that what an artist does is it allows us to see somehow real beauty. Transcendent is a word that's often used of art. This is what we're touching on, right? That it's more than just a painting, and it's more than just an accurate p- depiction of a tree. It captures something beyond that, something deeper than that. Now, in actuality, this principle is a lot more broad than the arts. Okay? Another Christian uh, artist, J.R. Tolkien, um, came to a point in his life where he realized that this massive undertaking of the Lord of the Rings that began with years and years of creating languages and cultures before a single sentence of the story was written, he started to realize that he might not finish it before he died. And the reality of that and how much more there was to do and the slow pace that had taken so far really started to weigh on him. And a local newspaper asked him to write a story for his newspaper and so he wrote a story that's called Leaf by Niggle. Now, niggle's not really an American English word. In British, it means to nitpick. It means to frenetically and frantically fix and fix and fix and fix. And Leaf by Niggle is a story by an artist named Niggle who one night is having a dream, and he dreams of the perfect leaf. He sees it so clearly in his mind, and he knows that the most important thing he can do in his life is to paint this leaf. So he begins very quickly, the next morning, in fact, and he begins to paint... And he tries and it's a little bit wrong so he puts on more paint and he gets a little bit closer and as soon as he's painting he starts to realize that it's it's only one leaf on an entire tree. So he throws out the canvas and starts again and he begins to paint the tree and then he realizes the tree is part of a forest. And so at this point he's taken up his entire studio wall and he's painting the entirety of it and he's working on it day and day and every once in a while his neighbor Parrish is calling him and calling him away from his project to take care of little needs that he has and he starts to have the same fear that Tolkien had. He starts realizing that he knows sooner or later he's going to have to go on the long journey and that this painting doesn't seem like it's going to be done. And it starts to weigh down on him and he paints harder and harder and eventually he gets sick and he realizes that long journey is right around the corner and it's not going to be finished. And then he goes on the journey. If you haven't guessed yet, we're talking about death, okay? And so at that point in the story, Tolkien says that people came into his house and they found this painting and many of them saw a leaf at the center that seemed valuable so they took it, they hung it in a museum and it was seen by a handful of people. But that's not the end of Tolkien's story. Tolkien's story picks up again, and it says, Now on the other shore, Niggle's walking along, and he's walking, and he looks, and he turns, and he sees his leaf. But not a painting of it, the leaf that he had always envisioned, and it's there, and there's the tree, and there's the whole forest, and it's real, and the story abruptly ends. What Tolkien consoled himself with, what he found encouraging, was he recognized that in his telling of the story, he had tapped into that capital T truth. And whether he finished it or not, the truth was true. And the reality was real. And the great promise of Christian heaven is that that reality will be experienced and fully known. Tim Keller, I know I'm calling in all of the ammunition this morning but, or this evening, but it's helpful. Tim Keller, talking about this same story, points out that anything we do as human beings that we take passionately always has this same aspect in it. Right? And so it, it doesn't matter if you're an artist or a storyteller. Say that you're a lawyer and you, you take the job because you realize there's a tremendous amount of injustice and you want to set it right. That's according to a Christian viewpoint because there is such a thing as justice and there's also such a thing as a just judge and eventually there will be a just judgment. And so you're seeing that and seeking to be as on earth as it is in heaven. Lawyers, even when they start in this way, struggle with the same problem that Nigel and Tolkien did, right? The reality is injustice continues and lawyers keep dying, right? And so even if you devote yourself just to one small town and you're going to route the injustice out of there, we live in a feudal world, right, where not all these things come to pass. Maybe your passion is, is family. Maybe what you really want to do is raise the perfect children, the reality of that is because not merely are children a blessing, but, but humanity itself. Be fruitful and multiply. God's entire plan is, is embodied in your heart. But it doesn't always work out. And the reality is no matter how much you do to shape your children, someday they will stand around your graveside. And then you lose control. Then you have no more power. Then your job is done, as they say. No matter what it is that we as human beings get passionate about, from a Christian perspective, that's because we've tapped in to the reality of who God is, to the truth with a capital T. But there's a problem, a big one. And it's the one that C.S. Lewis brings out that will help us get back to where we're going. This is the problem simply stated according to C.S. Lewis. One of the characters says this. He says, every artist, every poet, every musician falls away from their first love, the love of the thing told, and falls in love instead with the love of the telling. And he says that that biodegrades and decreases down. It follows that trajectory until it's just a love of self and reputation. And frankly, I don't think this is that hard to illustrate. There's a book called, What You Want is on the Limo. It's a book about the end of the 1960s, and interestingly enough, the author puts the end of 1960s, not in 1969, like you would expect, or December 31st of that year, but 1974. And the reason he argues this is the case is because of what happens. He follows a couple of bands, so he looks at The Who, and he looks at Led Zeppelin, all of these bands that were birthed out of not just a music movement, but a social movement, right? Woodstock brought these bands to the limelight, and the music at that point was all about message. it was about identification. The audience and the sub uh, you know the musicians were one, they were seeking the same thing, they were after the same thing, and the songs became anthems. but that all changed by one thousand nine hundred and seventy four and he points to a couple of things um, one is uh, is the release of The Who's Quadrophenia, which comes out in 72, and then they start touring. Um, But there's a song on it called The Punk and the Godfather. And it's this weird self-referential song where there's a person in the audience watching The Who play and realizing they don't have a dog in that race anymore, that the connection is gone, that now it's all about them. And so the song says, you have a voice, but don't you realize we gave it to you? You feel like a self-made man, but don't you realize that we've made you? And Pete Townsend says in the writing of that song that the idea he had was that a fan is so excited because the music's meant so much to him, and he gets to the backstage line, which, by the way, was a new phenomenon that begins with arena concerts, the, ability, the, the reality of backstage, and sees the artist and calls out, and all he gets is an FU. It's that response, okay? So, interestingly enough, the Who sees this, and that's effectively the end of their career. Quadrophonia is by far the last one, but it can also be seen in Led Zeppelin, and their timeline's the same. That's the uh, their last album of Any Quality comes out that year, but at the same time, he points out that by that point, John Bonham, the drummer for Led Zeppelin, which hands down is in like the top twenty drummers of history. Okay, uh, he's now made it a habit to have forty-five to fifty-minute drum solos. Okay. Now, to put that in perspective, 1964, a decade earlier, the Beatles come to the U.S., their entire set list is 45 minutes, okay? How does that happen? How does this band that's a voice of an entire nation, of an entire movement, suddenly take 45 minutes for a drum solo? It's because it becomes less about the message and about the messenger, right? And what he argues in that book is that that's the beginning of the superstar. That where we find ourselves now, where now talent isn't required for celebrityism, right? Celebrity is something you can do without having to get to that point, And it doesn't seem to be anything but eyes on you, right? It has no value, no content, uh, no talent whatsoever. It all begins, in his opinion, here. But once again, I, I would say we see it in every world. Imagine the guy who, who dreams of being a paleontologist. All he wants to do is help the world understand, you know, the world of dinosaurs and these types of things. And he's doing it, and he's unearthing them, and he's making them known. And then he realizes that the only way he can keep this going is to shave off a little bit of this bone and to sell it off as a different piece to make his dinosaur complete. How does that happen? How do we get from, uh, you know, lawyers who aspire to be the solution and end up being another cog in the problem? How is it that sometimes those who start out and endeavor to be the most family-oriented or the most scary parents, it's that idea. It's that, that problem that eventually we lose our first love of the thing told and we begin to love the telling, it happens in preaching as well. One of the reasons, maybe you've noticed, one of the reasons I don't preach with notes is because I get obsessive about notes about every turn of phrase, about the structure of the sermon, about, you know, making sure every one of my points begins with R. And the reality is there is, a, there is a very thin line between recognizing improving your skill improves the telling and improving your skill because you're improving your skill. In any form of communication, and it doesn't matter if it's the barrister giving his closing remarks I know I just used a British word, the lawyer using his closing remarks. It doesn't matter if it's the novelist writing his book. It doesn't matter if it's the parent explaining their philosophy of parenting. In any communication, there's the message. And then beneath that, there's a subtext. And the subtext is why you're saying the message. And it's usually also what the message accomplishes. And this is, this is true in the, the smallest pieces of language we do. If somebody says, hi, how are you? Sometimes that has the subtext of, I'm curious how you're doing. Other times it has the subtext of, I'm trying to be polite, I don't actually want to know, right? Same message, very different intention. The reality is the subtext that we are all drawn to in our communication is ultimately tainted by things like, aren't I great, right? And you've probably seen it in preachers, and I've seen it in comedians, right, where you can tell by the way they carry themselves that they're almost sitting in the audience with you thinking about how funny they are. Or they're almost just trying to impress you with their intelligence or with their turn of phrase or with with their, um, you know, the fact that they've achieved, that they've arrived. And so every illustration they give is a personal illustration of how great they are. Subtext. What I'm telling you today is that's an inherent flaw in human life, Okay that it happens to all of us in all sorts of ways, and it's for a very simple reason. It's because you are not the center of the universe. And any time we try and tell a story and we take the limelight, the story gets boring, and it also begins to tear apart. I'll tell you the truth. If you want to be the center of the world, you can do it, but not if you want a very big world, right? Right? In fact, isn't that exactly the problem with the people that we put in mental institutions all the time, the people that we would call mad? It's because it's all about them. And so they're conspiracy theories. Everyone in the world is out to get them, including including Paul McCartney, right? They're so important that Paul McCartney wants them dead. But we do the same thing all the time, and we we make our aspiration in life, here's the story I'm going to tell, here's what makes life valuable, it's going to be about me. And if I can use, you know, an illustration in our own universe, you have gravity. You do. So if you want things to revolve around you, that's fine. But it's not going to be a very big solar system, right? It's not going to be a very big world. And if you want to leave room for the beauty and for the truth and for the complexity of life, there's going to have to be something else at the center to hold it all together. Now, bringing the two together... This is why, after Jesus effectively says, by claiming the title Messiah for himself, the entirety of human history pivots on my life. The focus of what God's doing in the world and the story he's telling is all about Jesus. Right After saying that, he says, so, if you want to find meaning, if you want to find significance, if you want to discover the part that you were made for, it's going to be by stepping out of the limelight and putting me in it. I mentioned that idea of subtext. There is one appropriate subtext, one that should rule everything we do, and the Bible simply labels it worship. Okay, and when the arts start, and it doesn't once again have to be Christian art, when that truth is seen and it's proclaimed, it is at its most basic level worship. The Bible, over and over again, um, one of the titles that it uses for God is just simply "I am." Okay, and so. I am is just this proclamation of God that he is self-existence, that you can fill in the blank and he's all those things. He is love, he is goodness, he is light. But ultimately, he's the only I am, right? Worship, then, is in effect saying you are, right? It's recognizing that. It's recognizing that God is glorious and glorifying him. And so what I'm saying here is in the simplest places, those passions begin whether we know the giver of those gifts Whether we know, you know, the man behind the curtain doesn't matter, it's inherently recognizing this is beautiful, and therefore it regards the artist who made it, okay? Recognizing this is true, and therefore regards the storyteller who's telling the story. But the problem is, eventually, we turn inward. Eventually, we begin to put ourselves in the limelight, and eventually, like that artist, we come to a place where we would choose our own painting over the truth itself, I don't know if you noticed the verse um, that Ozzy put at the beginning of his film. It's out of Corinthians, and it says, For we see in a mirror today dimly, but then face to face. All of these glimpses we get are just that they're glimpses. But the reality of who God is and what he's offering in Jesus Christ is full frontal truth. All of it. He says, God is endless. Taste and see. And he says, I'm content you know, with my 3D model here. Thank you. I'm content with my theological understanding of who God is. Really, the thread that runs through all of the characters we've looked at and all we will is the same. And It comes down to the same principle. So with that in mind, now let's hear Jesus' words afresh. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Okay? Let's deal with the last verse first. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? What does it matter how skilled you are in bringing out beauty if you no longer recognize it for what it is? If you no longer appreciate it just because it's beautiful? What does it matter if you become renowned as the greatest and most just lawyer of your age when in actuality it's all a farce? And recognize this, what Jesus says here about denying yourself, about taking up your cross, if you're going to pursue justice, it applies. There will be occasions where it's either your ego and your reputation or the right thing. And if you're at the center of the story, you will choose ego and reputation every time. You will make the choice that maintains the balance of your image. You will choose the way that keeps you in the center. And sometimes you will do it actually believing your own press, right? Right? we've met this, we've seen it in other people, there is this reality in human life that is inherently not self-aware, and so believes that they are actually the savior, actually bringing this, when in actuality they are destroying things all around them, and it's so hard to break that illusion, isn't it? But the reason is because of meaning, because of significance, Because if you say like that man, I'm an artist, or I'm a lawyer, or I'm a mother, if your identity hangs on these things, and that thing is falling apart, then your identity falls with it. By the way, that's why the Bible says don't be idolatrous. Don't worship other gods. Not just because God is a jealous God, but because everything else will destroy you. Because it's not God, simply put. And so what Jesus is recognizing here is you can pursue your dreams, but inherently something is wrong with human nature. You're bent in such a way that you will pursue it in a way where even if you get your dreams, you'll have lost the ability to enjoy them. And so what does he offer as a solution? He says, let him deny himself and follow me. Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying... God is interested in truth and he is interested in justice and he's bringing about those things and he is interested in beauty. He's bringing about all those things primarily and completely and fully through this person, Jesus Christ. And so if you want it, following him is what it looks like, but that means no longer following your own ambitions and destinies, definitions, ideals, and all of these things. You have to remove yourself from the center of your own story See, there is one other option. You can say, well, I agree with you. A a self-lived life is a meaningless life because all life is meaningless. I mean, the universe is so big and the process of evolution is so profound, even the greatest painting is just the firing of synapses and cause and effects, and the only reason we're interested in it is because it helps us breed more kids for some reason or another, right? You can reduce it down and say it's completely meaningless, but there is another option. It is possible that the reason we look for meaning is because meaning exists, and it is possible that our obsession with telling stories is because there's a story being told, and it is possible that our desire for art is because there is such a thing as beauty, and there is a great creator, and if that's the case, then it's not just meaning can be found, it's meaning is found in the meaning maker, right? It's not just a story can be told and you can live the life that tells a story. It's a true, significant life is going to be found in tune with the story, right? Familiar with its plot points and following suit. The artist in our film, he says, well, at least there's reputation. But I want you just to recognize tonight how flawed that perspective is, okay? what's the oldest and most ancient artist you can name? I mean, we can, we can go back to the Renaissance and we can pick up quite a few. You might even recognize their paintings. If we're following Western history, you can probably get back to Greece and you know, for example, um, you know, for example, certain pieces in Western. Maybe you could even look into Asian, uh, Asian art and push back a little bit further. But eventually you're going to hit the place of the unknown. Does that mean there were no artists in ancient Babylon? No, it means that 2,400, 4,000 years later, they're forgotten. And the reality is, you just keep winding the clock long enough, and that is inevitable, okay? The problem with making significance all about us is the problem that Niggle faced. You will die, and life will go on without you. All of your dreams will either go up in shambles. Maybe you're the greatest business builder of your age. Someday you're going to have to recognize that when you die, it'll be in the hands of lesser men. That's what Ecclesiastes says. And then what? Everything you built, one mistake, all gone. There's your legacy. There's your reputation. Bankrupt and abandoned. But... The glory is if this story is really all about Jesus and if the finish line is the consummation and the culmination of all things, then everything you do following suit with him in the limelight, focusing on him, is not just good storytelling, but eternally significant. It becomes part of the story. That's what's at stake here, not just for the artists, but for all of us. And here's the best part. The cross of Christ and the resurrection doesn't just say all of human history, this is the focal point. It doesn't just say this is the climax. It doesn't just say God is telling a story and it's ultimately about him and his son. It also says it's a tremendously good story. It's a story worth telling. Because the reality is, while we are preferring our paintings to beauty, while we are... Uh, elevating motherhood and destroying our children while we are pursuing justice futilely and then becoming part of the problem, that's when God had this plan to send Jesus. That's when Jesus walked among us. The reality is every single person who condemned Jesus, who cast his vote against him, who drove the nails into his hands, who looked away like Pilate and washed his hands of the whole affair. Every single one, like us, had lost the plot of the story. And yet Jesus still died, and not just died, but died for them. And then it freely invites them to come and follow. The cross of Christ effectively says two things. It says, the problem is worse than you believe. You're not enough. You can't pull it off. You will not bring significance in your life. And on the other hand, it says, but God loves you so much, he'll take care of it. He'll do what needs to be done. And so the tension here is not, I've done so much for you, the least you could do is deny yourself. It's there's two roads. The you road and the him road. Which one are you going to choose? Because the reality of life is a life of choices. And you can't choose both. You cannot make hell an inherent heaven. Let's pray. So drawn, Father, to meaning, to significance, to story. We're so drawn to passion. And all of these things have value because they come directly from who you are. And the reality is, you have given us beauty. And it's tainted by the fall. It's tainted by our behavior. We're, we're often blinded to what it is or we put the pieces of truth together in a way that doesn't complete the puzzle and that dogmatically destroy others who disagree. But the reality is there's still beauty here. There's still truth. And sometimes we even recognize it. And I know that all of us know what we're capable of. turning aside, and instead of being in love with the thing that we were enraptured by, drawn to, we become in love with our version of it, with our telling of it, with what we bring to the table. And so now we don't paint because there's beauty in the world, we paint because I'm a beautiful painter. I pray, Lord, that we would recognize the freeing offer that Jesus makes here that if we'll only deny ourselves and step out of the limelight and place God back in it, if we'll only follow Jesus on his path, then not only, not only will you save us from the consequences of our sin and save us from hell, but you will bring us into that abundant life that we only caught glimpses of. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but because of what Jesus has done, we will see face to face. Now we guess we ponder, then we will know. Now we long, then we will experience. I pray, Lord, that we would recognize that every day those two choices are presented to us again, to follow in the footsteps of Jesus or to call the shots, to determine and in our own effort and strength make something out of this life. Or receive it as a gift available in Jesus Christ. To tell your story. Or to interrupt and tell ours. I pray that you would just help each and everyone in this room to make the right choice. And that we would be able to look on the deepest and darkest scene in the entire story. When all of humanity rejected God. Crucifying him and putting him on a cross spurning his free offer of love and his teaching of truth that we would recognize even there and in the midst of that and even using that, you said, no, this is a comedy and not a tragedy. This is a crucifixion, but there is a resurrection. And this is the way that I set all things right. This is the way, in the words of Samwise Gamgee, that all sad things become untrue. I pray, Lord, that we would keep that in mind as we go about our service tonight and as we go about our week. In your name we pray.